Alright, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to Season 3 of FS Ride Along, and our guest today is Captain Ox, and he's an A320 pilot, author, and columnist for Airways Magazine, and I wanted to bring him on uh, to start the third season of FS Ride Along so we could talk about the 320 short to medium range flying, and of course share his written work. So, Captain Ox, thank you for coming on the show. How are you doing today? Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me, and uh, hello, everybody out there. <laughs> Welcome to podcast land. You will be a victim. Uh, <laughs> Looking forward to it. <laughs> oh, good, good, good. Uh, so how did your uh, passion for aviation start? Uh, well, <laughs> like I like to say often on the blog, uh, ask any pilot how they started flying, and you'll hear a love story. And... Uh, one much like mine. Mine started uh, way back as far as I can remember, uh, five, six years old. I uh, literally have dreams of flying and floating and so forth. And uh, every noise in the sky sent my uh, gaze uh, upward. And uh, I just got a thrill every time I saw a plane in the air and uh, practically peed my pants if I actually got to go on an actual airline flight. <laughs> Yeah, I remember the excitement of my first airline flight. It was uh, probably a 737-300 from Sacramento to Ontario, and it's just like you get on the airplane and you have the all the excitement of that, and then they you know, push the thrust levers forward and you feel like you're going to rock it out of your seat. It's just a one-in-a-million experience, and it's, it's funny in the sim world, and I'm sure you experience this in the real world too, you know, it just becomes so mundane and routine a lot of the times. And then you think to yourself, oh, wait, this is like a really unique experience and possibly a new experience for some of the people in the back. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's true. And even uh, I had the same kind of uh, experience as you did as a kid. Uh, I, I remember almost verbatim the conversation I had with the pilots when I was boarding when I was eight years old. Uh, going from uh, Phoenix to Los Angeles to visit my cousins, and the highlight of my vacation was not Disney Disneyland; it was the flights over there and back. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I think that was uh, either Bonanza or Hughes Air West, and so it was probably like an MD eighty or something. But uh, yeah, it was just uh, just an amazing time. And I think those those exciting uh, thrills are really what propelled me towards uh, becoming obsessed with flying. I mean, even. Uh, even in first grade, you know, I'd be drawing, doodling dog fights with my uh, with my buddy Alan, uh, you know, like World War II P-51 Mustangs fighting each other and so forth. So we were fairly obsessed with it, and that uh, continued on. And I can only imagine, you know, as we push up the thrust levers and we're up we're up front in the cockpit, isolated. But there's a couple hundred people in back, many of whom uh, it'll be their first time in the air. And uh, I can just imagine their uh, thrill with that first acceleration and pull into the sky. Yeah, yeah, it's it's. I I haven't rode on a tube liner in quite a while, but every time I do it, it's an exciting experience. Oh yeah. Does it <laughs> does it get mundane for you? Of course, that's a challenge. Um, you know, it's 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 uh it's my job uh and uh anytime you take uh, something that's your passion and turn it into your job that's going to be a uh, an innate challenge is to uh 
keep it exciting and and so forth that the wonder of flying but you know even the career itself and uh, the job itself comes with its own thrills i mean now i've I've been in in the left seat uh permanently since 2000 and uh and uh, it's uh it it is is somewhat of a not only a, a challenge but uh, also a bit of a thrill to be sort of the man the one who has to uh uh answer to everything one who who has to make the shot uh, call the shots and uh and has to uh, solve all the problems but at the end of the day it's a very uh, satisfying um satisfying job and uh so so maybe some of that uh magic of the you know the the sensations of flight the accelerations and so forth get lost as the day grinds on but uh but it's still uh, just a fantastic job uh, i i can't imagine doing anything differently yeah all i can say is i'm incredibly jealous i you know <laughs> i i don't mind the way life has taken me because it allows me to interview people like you all the time which is a lot of mm-hmm. fun but I would much rather be strapped into the uh, the flight deck in the front. Oh, <laughs> and and what uh, do you uh, do? You do any flying on the side on your own? Um, I will take a flight lesson whenever I can, but um, I kind of live close to the margin, so to speak. So that's maybe once every five years. Oh, I got you. Yeah, but I I mean, like I said, anytime. You know, anytime you can get into the air, especially, you know, just getting some hands-on experience, I'm sure it's it, probably even the same for you. Whenever you get to hand fly, it's just, it's very tactile and very, I have no other word for it, but real, you know. <laughs> I, it, it's yeah. just this unique experience, especially after spending so many years on the sim, you know you go to the sim and you're struggling with flight controls or whatever else. And you go into the real airplane. It's just like, Oh, it flies. It just, <laughs> it just flies. Right. That's a good word for it. Uh, yeah. You know, those full motion simulators are so realistic. It feels like you're flying, but I can, I can imagine the desktop simulators. You're not getting that sensation of flight. Um, I, in recent years kind of come full circle and gone back to general aviation and, Hand flown a little bit. My buddy's uh, Cessna 310 and a couple other uh, pieces of machinery, such as uh, uh, another buddy's biplane and so forth, and really bringing that tactile sensation back. and it And it's quite a thrill. It's almost like uh, almost like I'm back again to the roots and experiencing things for the first time again. Yeah, yeah, it's very cool to go back to GA. I I will always have a love for GA. It's not as robust in the sim world but every once in a while i'll get off the airliners and still do a bonanza flight or something like that so um how how did your career progress did you go the military route or did you all do all private training the uh the beginning of my career is 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 a bit of a (laughs) yo-yo uh in fact um a, a lot of the uh the premise of my novel, The Last Bush Pilots, uh, is a similar situation I had. Uh, I, uh, I went to, I, I didn't do the military. I went to, um, I did, I like to say I did it the hard way. I went, uh, I paid for it myself. <laughs> yeah, that is the hard way. <laughs> I uh, went to college, um, went to a college that specialized in flight training uh, called Cochise College in Arizona and then uh, transferred 
uh, to uh, Arizona State University and finished out my degree. But by the time I did the transfer, I had all my flight ratings up through CFI. So I started flight instructing, and when everybody else went to uh, Starbucks or it would have been McDonald's at the time to work <laughs> part-time, I got to go uh, flight uh, flight instruct. And um, that was a, a thrill in itself because uh, instead of paying for flying, I was actually getting paid to fly, and that was the real key. And, of course, uh, you need to build your time as quick as you can and so forth. The whole goal being to get to your major as soon as possible because uh, you, your seniority number is everything and affects the rest of your career. But um, back there, this was, uh, this was the mid to late 80s uh, that I was doing this, uh, mid-80s. I graduated in 86. Uh, and then after I graduated, I started flying. Uh, in addition to the flight instructing, I started uh charter flying and flying stuff like uh, Cessna 210s. Uh, our bread and butter route was um, Grand Canyon tours. I'd fly over the canyon and uh, give a tour, kind of like a tour guide. And I actually loved that. It was a, it was a real hoot and I uh, did a lot of research and learned about the colorful history of um, not only the Grand Canyon, but, you know, the Southwest and so forth. So I had passengers from all over the world. Uh, that I would not only have to safely fly, but also entertain as a tour guide <laughs> during the flight. So it was quite a challenge. Uh, so so uh, I really started uh, building time, uh, but uh, it's easy to get stuck in a rut. Um, there's a, there's catch-22s all through your career as a civilian uh, pilot. Um, you know, the, the catch-22 being that you can't get the job without first having the experience. So... Uh, I was building time, but it was all single-engine time. So my big gotcha was that I didn't have any twin-engine time. And then the next next hurdle would be turboprop time or turbine time. Uh, so each of those hurdles is uh, is pretty formidable. Uh, my big uh, break came when I um, got a phone call from a buddy in Alaska and basically took a took a job over the phone uh, over the phone. And three days later, I was a bush pilot in Alaska. And <laughs> that was quite a baptismal by fire, um, having flown in the uh, beautiful blue skies of the desert southwest and then suddenly being thrust into this alien world uh, full of all these clouds and these this strange stuff called rain. It's actual water that falls from the sky. It was very bizarre to me. <laughs> End of the world. What the heck's going on for an yeah, Arizona? Yeah, so. Uh, and and that's uh, that's a big premise for my book, The Last Bush Pilots. The main character um, is is trying to get out of his rut and uh, launch his airline career. And he takes a, a, a f- uh, job over the phone and goes to Alaska and, and thrust head head first into the deep end and has to learn to sink or swim. And that was kind of my situation. So uh, the the book is a is a novel, but it's uh, it's kind of loosely based on my initial situation going up there. So um, it's real indicative of what uh, what a young upcoming pilot has to do. Um, now, anymore these days, the pendulum's kind of swinging the other way. Back then, it was really hard to scrape and and get your name out there and uh, build that time and get noticed by airlines now the uh the quote quote looming pilot shortage that we've been joking about for 30 years is actually starting to happen so i'm real excited to see some of these uh kids that that i've uh, come to know on my blog 
uh, around the 20s, 19, 20, 21. They're starting their careers, and they're really progressing rapidly now. It's a, it's, it's just a, a thrill to see these people uh, doing that coming up behind in the, the new generation. Yeah, it really is exciting, and I mean, I'm just listening to your tra- to your tale and thinking to myself, you know, doing tours of the Grand Canyon, how cool would that be? Because you're right, that is a really special, unique part of the world, and I can remember um, I went to college in uh, Phoenix, or Tempe actually, just 48th mm-hmm. and be- Baseline. Um, but I can remember whenever I went nuts, I would go up to Flagstaff and uh, go to the airport and kind of drool a little bit. Um, it just, you know, I'd get the sectional out and go, wow, this beautiful airspace, really unique part of the country. Um, and then, too, I mean, it is exciting, even just uh, from a, you know, somebody just looking through the fence, so to speak. Uh, to watch uh, younger people get into the career. Um, I've got a friend from uh, the UK that uh, we are old friends from uh, a train show I used to do. We used to be rail fans, and then it got to be, you know, before I know it, he's off in New Zealand, and, you know, a year, (laughs) two years later, he's flying to 320. I'm just kind of... You know, going what? How <laughs> on what? How on earth did that happen? Good for you. How on earth did that happen? Right, right place at the right time. Yeah, no, I was I was born and raised in Phoenix, so I was blessed with uh, uh, geographic uh, favorability here. But because because pilots come from around the world, literally, to train here in the desert southwest. Uh, you know, anything from Lufthansa, who's had a training facility out here for decades now uh, to uh, Koreans and, and different uh, uh, different um, uh, airlines around the world. They send their ab initio pilots out here to train, and uh, it's it's really going great guns around here. And the main reason is for the uh, for the beautiful skies we have out here and relatively flat terrain, at least over the desert. Yeah, yeah. I don't miss the heat, but I do miss the the airspace. <laughs> Yeah, you were going to college uh, within walking distance of my house now, believe it or not. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Uh, so, seems like such such a long time ago. I graduated in 2007, which I know mm-hmm. to you seems like, oh, yeah, it's yesterday, but <laughs> any, well, anyway. Oh, that's 10 years ago. That's, that's, <laughs> that's pretty impressive. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to say, just continuing on our train of thought of the, uh, you know, working your way up up the aviation ladder and the challenges at least I had at the time. And, and right now we talk about um, how the looming pilot shortage is really springboarding pilots in their careers, but things can change overnight. We can have another nine 11. We can have another economic crash. Who knows? You know, we've got a, we've got a new president who's quite the wild card. Um, so who knows where this train's heading? So, yeah. Uh, so those opportunities can dry up overnight and you're back to the challenges. And, um, I, I, I wrote a recent article for uh, Airways magazine called Pilots of the Caribbean, and it really, it's a humorous story, but it really uh, succinctly summarizes, I think, the uh, the challenge of the young upcoming pilot and what he's got to do to make his career happen. You've got to roll the dice, um, and, and I've often said that uh, a pilot's career is nothing but timing and luck, but sometimes you have to create your own luck. Uh, for example, I was down in the Caribbean. I had a job. I finally got a twin engine job flying out there. Well, 
I found out that there were uh, set multiple incidences of uh, poor maintenance on my plane. So I actually walked away from that job. First, the only job I ever quit and walked away from. And uh, so now I was stranded in the Caribbean with no with no job, no place to stay, no money. <laughs> and uh, I had the promise of a an interview with another airline in about a month. So I had to decide whether I wanted to go um, um, crying back to mommy with my tail between my legs back in the States or stay down there in the Caribbean and man up and tough it out for a month and roll the dice and, and get the job. And and lo and behold, it, I, I rolled the dice, decided to stay there, and lo and behold, um, I, I hit the jackpot. I, I got the not only what I was shooting for was a first officer position on a twin otter, and uh, when I got to class, it turned out all the first officers had showed up, but only half the captains. Oh, so wow. they looked around the room and found out who uh, who had the experience, and I had I had plenty of time, plenty of hours by then, but not quite a whole lot of multi-time. But they looked at my logbook and decided, okay, you're a captain. So <laughs> nice, nice. So so yeah, completely timing and luck. You know, here I was in a third world country. You know, just rolling the dice and betting the had betting the farm on it, and I hit the jackpot. So that was a real career changer, and it really launched my career to the next level. And that's sometimes what you got to do in this business. You got to create your own luck. Yeah, certainly, certainly. And it's, like I said, I'm on the other side of the fence, but it's fun listening to the stories of the people that are already in the industry and then watching people that are coming up and going through it. And, you know, there's there's a lot to be said through uh, going the military route, but I think in a lot of ways there's a lot more to be said for the civilian route because you know the only way you're going to have success like you said is luck and timing and dedication and passion um but it's just so interesting to hear the stories of the people that that went through civilian training it's like you know all the small little jobs you have to put up with and then finally you're at an airline and in some cases you go oh i don't want to go to the airline i want to go <laughs> go fly private or go off go back to being the CFI and starve or whatever the case might be. <laughs> yeah, that that's true. And, and and going back to my comment that the first half of my career was a bit of a yo-yo. Um, you know, I, I, I went through, oh, the first decade or so, just uh, I, I would get a job and then uh, something would happen. I'd lose the job or the season would end or, you know, even with that uh, – Caribbean story there was for a month with no job and nobody and <laughs> trying to survive by the seat of my pants so um you know and then you get a job and you start advancing and maybe that airline goes bankrupt that that airline I flew for by the way was uh, the Virgin Island seaplane shuttle and they mostly had Grumman Mallard um amphibian seaplanes beautiful airplanes um and then I was hired to fly their land-based twin otter so I did that for about a year it was just a year in paradise it was a wonderful time in my life um but uh then hurricane hugo came along and completely wiped us off the face of the map so uh there I was again completely uh out of a job out of an airline had to head back home and figure out the next step of my career so uh that, that kind of thing happens too so how do you uh, finally end up in the majors. Uh, slowly advancing, slowly uh, getting more time. Uh, the next job I got from the Caribbean was uh, with Rocky Mountain Airways, which uh, 
had just become uh, Continental Express in uh, the old Denver Stapleton Airport. And I got hired um, flying um, uh, Dash 7s. They call those quad otters, which is kind of interesting because I'd just flown the twin otter. So it was a four-engine um, turboprop plane, 50-seater, and it specialized. It was a stall aircraft, uh, short takeoff or landing. So it specialized in flying over the hump, over the front range there from Denver over into Aspen Steamboat, some of those ski resorts and so forth. And uh, that was a hoot, too. I, I um, was the first officer there for about a year, and it was just a wonderful mix of flying. I, I always said I wanted to uh, fly a bush plane and a spaceship. And uh, <laughs> the uh, the Havilands are a, a wonderful uh, combination of sort of an airliner and a, and a bush airplane. So I had a lot of fun flying over... Uh, into the mountains and flying into those stull ports like in Steamboat and so forth. So I did that for a year. I was just about to upgrade to captain on that when I got the uh, uh, call, the phone call that every pilot dreams of, and that was from America West Airlines. And um, they're my hometown airline in Phoenix. They'd started in Phoenix, and that was my number one choice in airlines uh, because I wanted to go move back home and just uh, live and work in, in the same uh, town which is sort of a unique thing for a pilot <laughs> and uh sure enough i got the job so that was in 1990 and i've been there ever since um but even so the uh the yo-yo of the career kept going i was hired as a first officer on the de havilland dash eight so uh it was kind of interesting went from dash six to dash seven to dash eight uh, flew that as in the right seat for a year, upgraded to captain, flew that in the left seat for a year, and then America West went bankrupt, and I found myself furloughed and on the streets again, and I was on the streets for about a year and a half. <laughs> um, I did uh, I did find a job flying as a temporary captain out east with Atlantic Coast Airlines, uh, so I was able to uh, allay any problems with that, and then, uh, then I got recalled back to America West, and I've been there ever since, and that that turned out to be another another dumb luck story. It's better to be lucky than good kind of thing. Um, it, the story behind America West is uh, it was one of the last, the only uh, actually surviving post-deregulation airline, uh, Upstart Airline. And uh, it turned out uh, that uh, it grew financially so strong that, um, that we wound up buying um, U.S. Airways out of uh, bankruptcy and merging with them. And then... Uh, U.S. Airways, in turn, turned around and uh, bought American Airlines out of bankruptcy and merged with them. So now we're one big happy uh, family, the world's largest airline. But uh, if if you'd asked me if this was going to happen 20 years ago, I'd have laughed in your face. Yeah, yeah. i got to say, just as a fanboy, uh, I remember in college – Watching U.S. Air, or not the U.S. Airways, the America West 320s. I didn't know there were 320s at the time, but I thought there were 737s. How pathetic is that? Um, but watching the America West uh, airplanes come in uh, over Tempe Beach Park and just loving it. And every <laughs> every time, you know, you get 2.5 left or 2.5 right, usually 2.5 left, um, and coming in over Tempe Beach Park, you'd see the America West building and be like, yes, I never get to fly them, but yes, I love that paint job. <laughs> that is cool, yeah. And you, well, you might you might have been right, because back then at the time, we had both 737s and A320s. We started getting the A320s 
in the early 90s. And when I was recalled, I actually got recalled to the Airbus. Um, it was about 93 or 4. And I've been on the Airbus ever since. So I, I stayed right seat there for several years. And then 2000, I upgraded to the left seat of the 320. And I've been there ever since. So uh, we do we did phase out the 737s based in Phoenix. Uh, there's still 737s that fly in here. Uh, that we call them the Native Americans, <laughs> the original American airline pilots uh, fly those out of Dallas. Um, but uh, yeah, we have uh, A320 uh, class planes based in Phoenix, and then also 757s right now. Yeah, I was going to say the other airplane I remember um, America West having was the 757s, and I think they mostly did runs to Hawaii. I think, but don't quote me on that. Yeah, that's true. They do mostly um, specialize in the Hawaii. We originally um, started Hawaii with with 747s of all things. You may, I don't know if you're around uh, at at that time, but uh, early 90s again. Uh, we had a couple of 747s that uh, went to uh, both Hawaii and then Japan. That would uh, have that. Yeah, that would have been neat to see. I didn't move to Phoenix till um, 2004, though. So. I think around the time I was plane spotting, it was probably all 320s and 75s. Although I was still new in my airliner aficionado stage, so I didn't know what the, <laughs> what the heck I was looking at. Still learning. Right. <laughs> but uh, anyway, um, it's just so cool to hear, you know, you're an America West pilot. I just, I like, I love that. Um, <laughs> but anywho... Um, Going back to your books for a second, um, sure. how did you get into aviation writing? Uh, well, it's uh, it, it was sort of a combination of two passions. Um, a- along with flying, I always had a passion for writing um, and, and storytelling. My, my father was a natural storyteller. I, w- when I was growing up, I was a wallflower. I was very shy and didn't want to talk to anybody. <laughs> and uh, But... But my dad had a gift for just um, gripping the room with with regaling tales of anything. He could talk about anything, and people would be riveted. So it was a wonderful uh, knack that he had. And I I found I kind of had a uh, uh, propensity towards writing, and I started writing stories. Um, And uh, and my first uh, novel, quote-unquote, was called uh, Little Froggy and the Golden Transmitter, uh, which I wrote when I was six years old and uh, fully illustrated. It was six pages long, <laughs> and uh, I didn't even uh, remember it until I found my uh, my mom's baby book that she had made, and uh, so it was real cute. So I, I, came, I came to realize I've been writing pretty much all my life. Um, I started writing uh, novels seriously when I when I was a teenager in, in high school, and uh, the very first uh, thought I came up with was. Um, for a young adult uh, spy series, and, uh, and that kind of kicked off when I, you know, I just like any teen, I loved, you know, like James Bond stories and all these adventures, and I thought, geez, James Bond is so cool. He's he can do all these things. He must have started training when he was a kid, you know. And I thought, hey, that's a good idea. So I came up with a story called Codename Dodger. Is about a fourteen-year-old orphan who who uh, lives on the streets and he's real streetwise and learned how to pick pockets and that kind of thing. And then he, uh, he winds up searching for his father's killer. Who's a uh, CIA spy, a, 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 a double agent. 
And uh, so the, the first book in that series is sort of a cat and mouse tale where he matches his street wits against this trained killer. And uh, that launches the series. Um, and then um, later on, in, uh, after I flew up in Alaska, that was just so full of uh, rich stories and tales and and adventures up there that I just had to write a book about it. So I went the novel route again and, and wrote a story but uh, about uh, all the crazy characters that you meet and the beautiful scenery you're flying over and the challenges that every bush pilot faces up there. And that, that became The Last Bush Pilots. Um, so those are the first two books I started uh, writing. And then that um, Codename Dodger series sort of morphed into a uh, what I call a spy fly series because uh, – you know, the, the the writer's number one mantra is write what you know. Well, I've been flying airplanes all my life, uh, adult life, so I thought, hey, we need to merge these two. So uh, subsequent uh, books um, in the Dodger series, um, a lot of a lot of it takes place on airplanes. In fact, uh, the third mission in the series is called Jihadi Hijacking, and it takes place on a hijacked A321. <laughs> huh, funny coincidence there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I've had a lot of fun uh, writing those series. Uh, novels are my favorite things to write, and I just uh, finished that uh, Codename Dodger series with Mission 4, Yakuza Dynasty, which takes place in Japan, where the lead character, Justin, he's 15 now by the end of the series. He uh, He's exploring um, some of the roots of his past, and uh, there's some quite quite a few shockers, uh, but still there's some thing uh, some scenes that take place on airplanes. I always find a way to get him onto an airplane and have some adventures there. In fact, he's got to figure out how to uh, how to escape a uh, Gulfstream airplane in flight uh, to escape his uh, Korean uh, mafia kidnappers. So <laughs> I had a lot of fun with that too. Yeah, it sounds like a lot of fun. I I share a lot of your passion for writing, and, you know, I've attempted several, I I call them novellas because I never Mm -hmm. really expanded on on them much, but I I share a lot of that passion, so it's good to hear how you... Well, that's great, Nick. How you kind of, um, you know, started small when you were a kid, and now you're a professional author and, you know, kicking butt. So that's, (laughs) that's really cool. Um, so how'd you go into the There I Was books? Yeah, the There I Was books is sort of my uh, nonfiction series, and um, those started, they, they kind of have their origins in the blog. I write a blog, um, I don't know if you mentioned it earlier in your podcast, but uh, it's called Adventures of Captain Ox, and it's at CaptainOx.com, C-A-P-N-A-U-X.com. And uh, I started that blog almost five years ago now, just um, just wanting to tell all these crazy tales that were pent up in my head uh, from 30 years in the cockpit. Uh, you just uh, you know, flying itself just lends itself to adventures, and I wanted to tell some of those crazy stories. And uh, so that's how it started out. But since then, it's uh, really expanded to uh, cover all aspects of aviation. And and really, one of the primary goals of my blog is to encourage the upcoming generation of pilots um, uh, and really open their eyes to the realities of the business. It can be a really brutal, brutal business. Despite this looming pilot shortage, uh, it can still be a pretty tough business to uh, live in and just just inherent in it, uh, being away from home half a week at a time and that sort of thing. It, um, it has all kinds of challenges, uh, financial and otherwise. But anyway, uh, 
so so I had uh, all these short stories that I started writing, and uh, some of those I was able to uh, publish in um, magazines such as uh, Plane and Pilot and AOPA Pilot, and uh, and over time I. Uh, started writing for Airways magazine pretty regularly, and they brought me on as a columnist. So uh, I had this great pool of short stories, and I just started collating them into um, into a book series. Uh, it's up to three volumes. There I was, volume three came out last summer, and there I was, volume four is on track to come out this summer in 2017. Um, and every volume always has contributing writers as well. It's not just my stories. Um, I always have at least three or four contributing um, pilot writers that tell their own crazy tales. Uh, so, so each one is kind of a standalone book. You can read them in any order, and each story in those books are standalone as well. You can read those in any order. So they're they're real fun. They're usually not too long, and uh, they're just uh, perfect for. If you're sitting around with a you know a few minutes, five ten minutes, or sitting on an airplane or something, they're they're just real fun reads. Yeah, I'm, I've got to say, um, I got started pulled into podcasting, listen to, listening to Joe Dion's uh, podcast, and a lot of that was was all there. I was stories, so oh, great. I absolutely thrive and love to hear those. So I'm going to have to check out those books. And I'm kind of a a shame that I haven't done it yet, but it's now on my short list. And I did fail to mention your blog, but uh, what's the address for that again? Sure, it's uh, capnaux.com. So I go by the name Capanox on there. Uh, And and a lot of people around the world just call me Capanox. Cool. So, yeah. Do you, um, by any chance, remember a blog, Flight Level 390? Yeah, I sure do. Yeah, I really miss that thing. That guy was a great author. Great author. Yeah, he was wonderful. Um, I, I actually, there, there's rumors as to who he is, and I know him, and I've tried to reach out to him to say, hey, I'll, I'm willing to, to republish your stories anonymously if you want, but unfortunately he hasn't taking me up on that offer so <laughs> kind of bummed because it was a lot of lot of beautiful gems he, he had a great uh, way of writing and putting you in the cockpit with him yeah that's such a bummer such a bummer uh but yeah great great old days of the internet i guess at this point right <laughs> um so i've read your stuff on airways i really like it um I started getting Airways just a couple months ago um, just to kind of get the business side of it because that's, you know, I read the um, the history of Delta. I can't remember the title of the book for the life, mm-hmm. life of me, but the inside of Delta and their business stuff. And then I got into the Pan Am story and that business stuff and that sort of side of aviation. And then to mix that, you know, with your you know, Airbus versus Boeing, what are they doing? You know, hey, Embraer's over here. Hey, the C-Series is finally here, all that. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I Yeah, mean, that's a real plane spotting type of magazine that lends itself well. Yeah. It's, beautiful photos and stories of different airlines and so forth. Yeah. What's your, what's your favorite part about writing for that magazine? Uh, you know, um, it, it, it's an unexpected surprise in that, in this just expands to all my writing, and that is uh, the people that I meet through it. Uh, it's been been wonderful. I met um, the editor Enrique Perella, um, uh, another uh, pilot writer Alan Carter, who you probably know. 
um, a UK. Um, he drives heavy metal. He's a he's a contract pilot, uh, usually flying seven forty sevens, but sometimes you'll find him flying a DC ten or something around the world. So he's got all kinds of crazy stories. Uh, in fact, he was one of my contributing writers in uh, volume three of there. He was. Um, in fact, going back to that, that was a military themed. Um, book uh, volume three and i have a couple of fighter pilot uh, stories in there from a couple of uh, bona fide fighter pilots which is real interesting but uh, yeah so uh through through the blog through my writing through uh, airways mag um their their new uh, site is called airwaysmag.com and uh so it, you can uh, you can read them in print um at airways get it barnes and noble or a subscription or you can go to their online site and subscribe and um, they they've got articles every day coming out on that so uh yeah so i've had a wonderful time this last uh, year um a year ago this january um i was invited to be a guest speaker on the airways uh caribbean cruise and uh, there was about 60 people 60 um <clears throat> excuse me 60 uh readers of the airways magazine that uh, signed up for it and uh, some of our uh, Airways Magazine staff uh, came along, and, and I was a guest speaker. Alan Carter was a guest speaker. And uh, we just had a, a blast. And, and meeting all those people, uh, not not just um, Alan and uh, Enrique, but also the, the readers themselves and, and befriending them and getting to know them. Uh, got to know a gentleman who was a retired air traffic controller out of LAX and another uh, gentleman uh, and his wife who uh, owns a uh, seaplane that uh, – they fly around Alaska and then they winter down in the uh, in Arizona and uh, so all kinds of great tales even with the readers out there. Uh, so I'd say by far that's that's the most uh, uh, the greatest gift that uh, this writing's brought me. That's very cool. It's, it sounds like you're bumping el- elbows with the uh, great people of aviation uh, in my circles anyway. Uh, Alan Carter's known for the. Um, the video he did, ITTV. Yes, yeah. So that's that's how I know him. I've um, I got the seven four seven model for uh, a flight sim, and I'd watch that video over and over again. It's like, okay, I've got to do this right. Oh, I'm not flipping the tank to engine switch. <laughs> ah, that's that's what happened there. So um, that's that's where I know him from. So yeah, that's, that's great. That's, yeah, and I uh, you know I should mention here too. Uh, it's um. Um, beginning of the year here, and we do have another uh, Airways cruise coming up. So I want to invite uh, you and all the readers, um, if you can find the time and uh, money for it, it's well worth it. Uh, we're we're doing a an Alaska cruise this year, and that's at the end of uh, May. It's the end of May into the beginning of June. I want to say something like May twenty five through June second, and we. Um, we start initially out of Seattle, and we actually spend a few days in Seattle touring the Boeing plant and a couple other really cool things, and that's with Airways Magazine. So uh, look that up on airwaysmag.com. They'll have uh, they'll have advertisements that link to those uh, <clears throat> those things. And uh, my 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 girlfriend, uh, who's my producer, Bunny, and I have signed up for that, uh, and I'll, I'll be a guest speaker again on board. And I'm real excited about this one because I used to uh, fly up there in the bush, so I've got all kinds of fun stories to talk about, uh, really just like our Caribbean one. I'd flown down in the Caribbean, too, so that lent itself really well to some fun uh, fun talks on, on board the uh, ship. So anybody that can make it, look into it and uh, see if you can find the time. 
Absolutely. I I don't know. I I was looking into that already, and uh, the cruises and me, well, we'll never be in the budget for that. But uh, it would be fun to just go up to Seattle a couple, uh, for a couple days, and I, I think the the pre trip stuff is open to anybody, isn't it? I, I'm not sure. I hope so because uh, I, I think that would be a really cool time, and and uh, I plan on uh, joining them for that as well. And I'm hoping to bring along my uh, uh, my buddy uh, Captain Dylan, who you may know from some of the videos I've done. Um, he's become sort of a celebrity on the uh, on the blog, and Captain Dylan, uh, we we call him that. It's an honorific. He. Uh, He's a gentleman, a young gentleman, 25 years old. He's absolutely in love with aviation, but he has cerebral palsy, so he's unable to actually fly. But his enthusiasm for flying is his enthusiasm for life, and his love for people just lights up the room. Uh, anybody that meets him falls in love with him. And um, and uh, I, I took him on a flight, and we did a video. Um, of taking him flying. It was his dream come true, and it's just a beautiful video. You're crying by the end of it. <laughs> and uh, and after that, I had pilots coming out of the woodworks wanting to roll out their own airplanes and fly Captain Dylan in it. And uh, so we've had some subsequent adventures with that. And so I'm hoping that um, Captain Dylan will be able to make it uh, with us to at least the Seattle leg on that. Yeah, that would be beautiful. I I very much sympathize with the. Um, I don't have CP, and that's bigger bigger deal. But my challenge is preventing me from getting a medical too. So I very much sympathize with that. You're forced to, you know, you can't be in aviation. You can look through the fence, but you can't be in it. And that's yeah, that's that's, that's got to be tough. I can understand. It's a hard spot to be in, but uh, I think it's so cool that that you've given him a place in your blog and you took him up to go flying and I really, you know, as an outsider looking in, like any time you can give an enthusiast even a five-minute ride in the air, an airplane, you know, just literally around the pattern, like they will explode. Yeah, absolutely, and it just makes you feel good too. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it, it, it just makes my day to to meet up with Dylan, uh, even just for coffee, but especially when we can take him flying and just see the delight in his eyes. And, you know, in his eyes, he's a, he's an airline captain and we, we feed that fantasy for him. We're more than happy to do that. <laughs> yeah. I, so. I just wish, uh, it seems to me like, you know, if he were in a slightly different circumstance, I'd be like, hey, here's Flight Simulator. You know, here's something that you can take over your life and you can be an airline captain. Really, you can <laughs> be. Right. But uh, anyway, um, do you have any good There I Was stories that you can share with us? Oh, absolutely. I, uh, <laughs> I've, I'm up to three volumes and coming out with four. <laughs> So uh, we we talked about um, we talked about the pilots of the Caribbean. That was sort of a there I was story, and that one is actually shared in volume three. Uh, how I lucked into the uh, captain's position down in the Caribbean, um, sort of by creating my own luck. And uh, there's a lot of humor involved. There's a lot of coconuts involved, and I won't say much more about that. But um, going back to your specific question, I'll, I'll relay one. One story that's uh, that's well known out there. Um, 
I wrote a fiction uh, version of this for the last Bush pilots, but it's very, very close to the truth. And, uh, and I actually wrote the nonfiction version of it that first published in Airways magazine and then uh, subsequently was uh, printed in volume one of There I Was. And that's uh, that's called The Sky Fell. And that's really a watershed moment in my career, uh, which, uh, which I had um, hoped to launch by going up to Alaska, like we we're talking about. Uh, but here I was, this fledgling pilot, didn't know anything about clouds or weather or anything else, and here I was trying to become a a, a bush pilot. And and uh, anybody that goes up there to fly the bush, uh, you 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 come away ten times the pilot you were going up there, or you die trying. So it was a real in-your-face kind of challenge daily, and uh, really. Uh, a one degree temperature dew point spread was a good day. <laughs> and, uh, good grief! Two, yeah, two mile visibility in fog—that was a good day. Um, so I learned very quickly, uh, you know, the ropes and and how the the whole thing works. And you're basically what they call scud running, and they they kind of poo poo that term anymore. But that's really the reality of what the bush pilots faced with. You're you're, I was in southeast Alaska out of Juneau, and um, you're flying out of Juneau. Juneau is, is built on the side of steep pine forested mountains, and those those mountains come crashing down into wide ocean uh, channel inlets, freezing ocean. So once you launch, you're surrounded by rugged terrain. You're surrounded by freezing cold uh, ocean channels and uh, and clouds. So you not you got to know your way around. You got to know what you're doing, where you're going, and you got to learn to read the weather. And I um, had to, you know, it was a baptismal by fire. Like I said, you had to you had to sink or swim. And uh, I, I got up to speed fairly quickly. Uh, initially, I was blessed with fairly decent weather, so I could learn the ropes, learn the routes. Uh, you're basically using pilotage. You've got a sectional chart in your in your lap and you're matching that with the terrain that you're flying over to get from point A to point B. And over time you memorize those routes and so forth. Uh, but then you got the added challenge of the uh, clouds coming down and the visibility coming down and, and you've got to not only maintain a safe flight, but a legal flight as well. Uh, and there was one time when uh, the, the pilots had warned me about this. They'd, they'd say, listen, there's going to come a time when, the sky will fall on you, and and I, you know, the, the way they describe it, I, I, come on, guys, you're just joshing me, you know, come on, you're you're just putting on the greenhorn. I can't believe this. Well, one day I find, found myself out in the open, and uh, and the clouds were dark and darkening, and the clouds are starting to lower, and I was hugging uh, the coastline, trying to fly around down to uh, a uh, an Indian village called Cake, uh, which is. I'm going to say 100 miles south. Maybe it's not that far, maybe 50 miles. But uh, you're flying. I was flying a Cessna 207 on wheels, a six, seven-seater. And uh, as that cloud base comes down, it forces you lower. You've got to stay beneath that cloud deck. And as the visibility drops, you've got to slow back, and you've got to start hugging the coastline um, more. And... um, and and just uh, that sky just got so dark that it just it, it literally fell. It just plummeted, and I had to dive towards the water to stay out of that, stay out of that muck. And uh, it was a really scary time. 
Um, the the winds were pummeling us. We were moderate turbulence and so forth. And uh, and I I'm, I've got my hands gripped tight in the wheels. I'm just just pouring sweat and eyes wide, looking out the window, hardly seeing half a mile in front of me. And uh, this uh, this uh, Native American, a Tlingit Indian, was sitting in the uh, seat next to me. And he says, my family hunts down there. Oh, and I good said, grief. I said, what? He says, yeah, my family hunts down there. And I look over and I'm like, are you crazy? We're about to die. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I'm, I took that as a cue and I... Okay, and I so I banked around to to let him have a look at his his hunting ground, and I don't know what it was, but it was a revelation that I had. Here I was in this maddening cacophony of of just madness, you know, surrounding me. I I thought we were close to death, and this guy is reminiscing about his childhood, and uh, you know. And I, th- I thought to myself, my gosh, this guy is so part of nature and this country that there's no threat to him. He doesn't even think of it. it he's, he's reminiscing about his childhood hunting grounds, you know. And this revelation walked, washed over me. I thought, wow, if, if that's the truth, then, then I, can, I can be that way too. And, and for some reason, this, this calm came over me. It was, like, it was like a Jedi calm, you know, use the force, Luke. And suddenly all this tension evaporated and I'm like, I'm part of this. This is Mother Nature. I am one with Mother Nature. And and I just stayed the course and I, I kept doing my job and I flew out of it. And pretty soon the, the cloud base started lifting and the visibility started lifting. And, and before I knew it, we were out of it. And I thought, oh, my God, that was a revelation. I mean, it was a real watershed moment in my career, and it really uh, really changed my attitude. I mean, not only gave me a healthy respect for Mother Nature uh, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, an awareness of that, but, but also I felt like I was, I was one with Alaska and one with the sky at that point, and, and it really changed my attitude around and, and – uh, it was just a it was just a beautiful moment, but it was definitely a, a a do or die situation at that point. Wow, wow, such an incredible story. Um, and I, I'm tempted to throw a Star Wars line in there, but it, it deserves more than that. That's wow. <laughs> go I'm, for it. <laughs> I'm one with the force. The force is with me. I'm one that's, with the that's force. That's right. There you go. <laughs> Hated that movie, but everybody's <laughs> quoting that, so might as well go oh, with the crowd. Fun. I loved the movie. That was a great one. Oh, really? Huh. Yeah, I loved Rogue One. <laughs> All right. Eat to each their own, to each their own. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, th- th- I can't emphasize enough how awesome those stories are, and I can't... Uh, I-, I can only imagine uh, how much you have on your blog and how much you have in the There I Was stories, so... Um, definitely I have to check it out and all the listeners have to check it out too. Sounds amazing. I just want to like keep listening to your stories, but (laughs) I I pay by the minute, so I can't do that. (laughs) Um, but let's get on to, um, kind of 320 aspect because basically what happened, uh, in the flight sim world is there's been a 320 that's been out for a while, and it's just kind of, you know, it's eh, okay. Um, And then recently there was 
kind of a high-detailed 320 um, that I can't even taxi. It's that detailed. Like, I, I huh. s- spent, like, an hour trying to figure out, uh, why won't the brakes release? Why won't the brakes release? Turns out, you actually have to... Apparently, when you're in the Airbus, you can't just... Um, push down on one of the brake pedals and the brake releases. You have to actually push the um, parking brake off. So in the sim, you have to actually physically push the parking brake off. And here I was trying to do it with huh. the, the pedals, and I'm just like, really? <laughs> too detailed, too detailed. But but that's kind of what happened in the sim world to make the 320 really interesting. It, it's really interesting. <laughs> Too realistic, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, but again, that's not my taste, not everybody's. Um, so, I, I understand the, the appeal of the 320 in the sense that, you know, it's simple to start, it's simple to turn around. Um, what what has your been, experience been with it, doing multiple legs a day for oh so many years? Well, I uh, I've long called the uh, Airbus uh, my favorite airplane, and it's because it's a lazy man's airplane. <laughs> it does everything for you, but you do have to babysit it. It is highly automated. It is fly by wire, which makes some people nervous, but to me, that's that's a boon because there's a lot more built-in redundancy for it uh, with it uh, that comes with the fly by wire as opposed to fly by hydraulic cables, hydraulic lines. Right, uh, which brings to mind such as that uh, United Sioux City um, DC-10. Oh yeah, it's such a sad yeah, the story. Severed, yeah. So uh, there is a lot of safety aspects built into it, but you do have to understand the systems. You do have to understand what it's doing and when it's doing it, and uh, what to do about it. Um, so there is a lot of monitoring involved, even for the pilot flying. Uh, because it is on autopilot the vast majority of the time you'll you'll take off manually you'll typically you can you can fly it manually as long as you want but most pilots will will um, put on the automation um, shortly after takeoff and that's not because they're lazy it's because that's the safer way to go you as soon as you click that autopilot on the airplane's doing it it frees you from the mundane task of the minutiae of flying so it frees your attention up. You can take in the big picture. You can watch for traffic. You can hear the radio calls better in the situation developing on the radio and so forth. So um, that's that's a big part of the concept of why it's so highly automated. And that is definitely the, the way of the future for any uh, airplanes being designed today. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question per se. Um, I, I will mentioned that even in even in our sophisticated full motion simulators there's still aspects of it that are a little bit different as compared to the uh the real thing it's as realistic as you could possibly get i mean down to the bumps in the taxiway as you're moving along down the taxiway but uh but but some things are a little bit uh different like um the the brakes are usually more sensitive and the uh the airplane on short finals usually a bit squirrelier than in real life and that kind of thing. So there's there's little tiny glitches here and there that uh, that aren't really fully realistic. So so even though you may complain about that on your desktop simulator, it's even in the even in the real 
the real simulator is there's still some glitches. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, there's the truth of it. The hard truth of it is, I mean, there's no replacement for the real airplane. And, you know, I mean, Certainly. for someone like me, it's like, I, I think for most people too, it's just like, if you want to th- fly an A320, you know, the best you can do for most people is just, you know, okay, I'm going to spend, you know, 120 bucks, get my rudder pedal, get my joystick and get this add-on for flight sim and i hey i'm flying an a320 and it <laughs> it just isn't the same it just isn't and i i can't tell you how much i would give and i think most simmers would give just to get a, a time in a full motion sim never mind the real thing right yeah and i know some people do go out there i mean it, it's something like 800 to a thousand dollars an hour to to fly, and I know some aficionados have gone out and done that, or flown 737s or whatever they want to do. Um, so, uh, yeah, do, do it sometime if you if you possibly can. I think it'll be the, the thrill of your life. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and you were mentioning systems before, and I thought I'd just follow follow that up because I think if there's one thing that simulators get right. And I think you'll probably mm-hmm. agree with me on this is the dynamics of the systems. Um, I'll give you an example from our world. Um, we have pretty much the same engine start procedure as you would, you know, APU bleed on, APU on, engine ignition on, start one, start two, um, mm-hmm. and we have to start each. You have to go with each sequence and you know monitor the APU as it's coming up and all those procedures. So, I mean, in that sense, it's very... I feel like sim pilots could do everything but actually fly the airplane. So, you know, when it comes to programming the autopilot, no problem. <laughs> you know, pro- programming the MCDU, no problem. Actually flying the airplane, oh my God, no. Um, <laughs> you know, my my approach is very much LNAV, VNAV, take a nap, or when I'm flying the Boeing anyway, but... Right. <laughs> um, you know, that's sort of what it is. But uh, it, it really is, is interesting how detailed the systems get. Um, well, Nick, Nick, I, uh, I got to interrupt you here. Uh, in that case, you need to read my book, Jihadi Hijacking. It's uh, codenamed Dodger Mission 3. And uh, in the story, the uh, the main character, Justin, and, and all the, all the codenamed Dodgers are told first person by Justin, the uh, 14-year-old orphan. And uh, he's he's obsessed with uh, flight simulator. He's flying the Airbus and all this stuff. And now now he finds himself on a hijacked airplane, and it happens to be an Airbus. And uh, so he knows his systems inside and out, but he's never flown a real airplane. So uh, even if even if uh, he and his father, his adopted father in this story, is a CIA agent. Uh, even if they can overcome the uh, terrorist, who's left to fly the plane? Well, here's this kid who's got the systems knowledge. And uh, so they wind up in the cockpit, and they have to land the airplane. And I, I'll leave it at that. But uh, I did explore that possibility. Hey, what what, uh, what are the chances of somebody who's real well-versed in, in simulator flying, they get thrust in the actual real situation? And I kind of explored that in this. And... And uh, I, I think the book uh, lends itself very well to reality because not only my Airbus captain and well versed with the situation, but uh, also I just had a lot of fun with the yeah <laughs> with the 
uh, simulator and situation with the uh, with the characters. So yeah, I think you enjoy that story. I'll have to send you that story after our podcast. You have to give me your uh, address, and I'll send you a signed copy. Oh, that would be great. That'd be great. Um, I was going to say that's a lot of you know a lot of sim pilots dream of that moment. Oh my god, the first officer's gone. Oh my god, the captain's gone. Does anybody <laughs> play flight sim? Um, you know that's that moment you want, but honestly, you know, heaven forbid I'm ever in that situation. All right, what's the ILS frequency? All right, enter that in. All right, Cat Three Auto Land. Here we go. There you go. <laughs> Problem solved. Well, that 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 would work great unless uh, Tara shoots up the systems for you uh, ahead of time and you don't have an autopilot. I won't oh. say anymore. <laughs> oh crap. <laughs> oh no that would be bad that'd be too easy <laughs> i'd crash that wouldn't be good right so going back to the mcdu programming for a minute mm-hmm. i'm sure the a cars takes care of loading the route and putting it in for you especially on such short legs but do you have any tips for fast entry um when you're pr- programming a route by hand well, believe it or not, we got to do a lot of manual entry ourselves. Um, depends on the uh, generation of the box. They call it, I think, CPIPs 1 through 3, something like that, is the generation of the uh, the box and the software. And um, and actually, initially, we had preloaded programs for all our flights. And then uh, that, <laughs> the, the, the funny thing about the irony about airlines is that the technology is about 20 years behind the curve. You know, it takes that long to design a system, get it approved, get it uh, to a, a, a financial uh, price point that the airlines would be interested in it and then implement it in the airlines. So ironically, um, your private pilot out there with the latest Garmin um, avionics stack is, is much more sophisticated than, than a lot of the stuff that we have in the plane, even the Airbus. So um, going back to the McDo, the, the, the McDo has a memory that's expressed in kilobytes. That's insane. So so, so uh, there, there actually came a point where they had to remove all the preloaded um, routes in order to save memory. So uh, we actually don't get those preloaded uh, we will, uh, in the newer generations, we can hit the init button and it will uh, preload the route that uh, comes up with our PDC, the pre-departure clearance. Right. So it's electronically transmitted, but even so, you have to go through and massage it a little bit, um, to, um, turn, um, select the runway and so forth and, and tweak it a little bit. And sometimes that uh, ATC will change your route as well. So. There, there's a lot of little tweaking that goes on, but even uh, but but occasionally we'll fly an older um, box and and you do have to manually load everything. I just did that um, yesterday. Come oh, good grief! Yeah, that you so, you must coming be- from uh, from uh, where was it? Uh, can you remember now? Philly, I think. <laughs> you must be really scrambling with those. Well, I guess your particular airline doesn't do particularly fast turnarounds but still i mean if you're hand programming a route you're trying to talk to the fueler you're trying to deal with catering whatever it might be that you're doing i i can't imagine how fast that goes and how stressful the pre-flight phase has to be the nice thing about flying airlines is most of the stuff is 
done for you. Catering, you're not, you don't have, the pilots don't have to order catering. It's already pre-ordered, um, for example. So really, realistically, Captain and First Officer walk on the plane and uh, we'll be ready to go in 10 minutes. Oh, wow. Uh, the longest process is deplaning the previous passengers and then inplaning the new coming incoming passengers. And then probably the, the longest part of the whole process is actually the baggage. So the ground handlers have to toss all those checked in baggage off the, out of the cargo bins and then throw the new ones on. So usually even with the fastest turnaround, we end up waiting a few minutes for the cargo to be, uh, to to be wrapped up so that's usually excuse me the longest part of the process what's uh your typical turnaround time hour and a half i guess it depends on the airline um about an hour typically uh we can do it as fast as 40 minutes i would say wow that that is pretty yeah if we're if we're behind like we pull in late or something and everybody's scrambling to make it work. And it depends also if you're flying a 319 or a 321 because you've got 124 passengers as opposed to almost 200 passengers. So that makes a difference too. That's true. Very true. Yeah, I'm I'm trying to think. Southwest supposedly does the 20-minute turn, but I think even they have bumped it up over recent years and gone up to 40 minutes or 45 mm-hmm. I, I know in the sim, even in the sim, the I mean, we have to tell the catering to do stuff, which you don't have to do. But even in mm-hmm. the, the sim, the bags take forever. And it's just like, all right, <laughs> I've got everything. realistic. <laughs> I've got everything programmed. The APU's running. Hurry up. Um, so that's that's realistic. Um, so going back to the systems. Um, I know you fly the 19, the 20, and the 21. Um, I assume those are all COs or current engine option. Um, do you have NEOs that are on the horizon, or are they already there? Uh, we do have NEOs. They originally being delivered to uh, the Native uh, Americans over in Dallas, and uh, they were flying those initially for about a year, but now... Now we have a system-wide seniority list, so everybody's flying everything. So I do see a NEO from time to time. Uh, I just did a Transcon, oh, the day after Christmas, actually. Flew, um, I want to say it was Philly to San Francisco, I believe. Um, so, And that was a NEO, and that was specifically configured for that route. They have, um, they have a business class in it, first class, obviously, and then a business class and an enhanced uh, coach class. So it's a little bit of a different ride. Very interesting. But uh, but sitting up front, you don't know the difference. You, unless you look out the window and see that sharklet as opposed to the winglet, you wouldn't know much difference. Yeah, yeah. I, I get the... I, I From what I understand, the systems are pretty much the same. It's mainly... Uh, oh, I don't know too much about Airbus, but I think length and range seem to be the major differences. And fuel burn with the engines, obviously. So interesting that that you just kind of all all intermix them, you know, for A319 to A321, and oh, sure, we'll mix in a Neo, no problem. It's all (laughs) all the same fleet, which I know is the point. Um, You know, that makes a lot of sense. 
very cool, though, that you're already flying the Neos, and uh, I guess they're all 21s at this point. I don't think anybody's ordering 20s. I could be wrong about that. Yeah, not that I know of. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, let's see. We've covered a lot, and you've given us fun, lots of fun stories. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. Hope you are, too. Oh, absolutely. Uh, a small little detail, and this is a stupid detail, but it drives me nuts. <laughs> um, when I'm flying in the, in the sim, if I fly a 737, and I, I don't fly with ATC because I'm lazy, um, and it's more fun without that. In, in a fantasy world, anyway. Right. <laughs> um, what I can do is I can hit the... Um, I can select the um, final, alti- final altitude for, the, for um, your final approach fix. Mm-hmm. And once the airplane hits top of descent, it will just descend for me. Um, Airbus, on the other hand, once I hit top of descent, I actually have to push the button before it'll descend is that realistic or does it descend for you if you pre-altitude select well what's your what's your suspicion what do you think i i would suspect actually now that i'm rethinking this (laughs) i would suspect that because atcs to give you clearance to descend you probably have to push the button there you go, and that's the philosophy of Airbus. Um, it can be annoying sometimes, but yes, that is correct. The Airbus will not descend until you tell it to. So even if you select a lower altitude, you have to either push or pull the uh, altitude knob to get it going. Now, uh, you, you probably know this because you're an old hat at the simulator, but uh, if you pull a knob on an, on the Airbus... It's in effect, you're pulling it towards you, meaning that you have control of it. If you push it, you're pushing it towards the computer, that is, the Airbus has control of it. So uh, in this case, you're at the top of Descent Arrow, you want to start down, you can push it, and we call that managing it. You can manage it, and that will descend on the profile that the Airbus has calculated is the optimum profile for the speed and cost index you have in there, or you can pull it towards you, and that's called an open descent, and it just brings the plane, uh, the engines back to idle, pitches down to keep the airspeed, and you'll get down to uh, that selected altitude um, as quickly as possible. Uh, the one, the one part of the managing that's, that has an advantage is that um, it will meet restrictions along the way. So if there's a waypoint that you have to cross at or above or at or below a certain altitude it will manage it in order to hit that. If you pull it towards you and it's open descent, it will go straight down to that altitude without regard to any restrictions along the way. Yeah, yeah. I love I, I love managed because I can just pre-select that final approach fix and uh, just, you know, whistle as it, it descends on its own for the most part. The sim <laughs> isn't quite as elegant with its meeting restrictions as it should be. Um, And uh, interestingly enough here, I'll interject, Nick, um, the the pilots have been violated. Uh, A lot of pilots, when they switch from Boeing to Airbus, that's one little gotcha that they're not in the habit of. They're used to having the plane pitch down automatically. So if they 
select that altitude and uh, they don't do anything about it when the top of descent arrow hits, they can they can stay right up at altitude where they're not supposed to be, <laughs> and uh, they wind up being high on the profile. And people have been pilots have been violated for that, so it's definitely a gotcha. And, th- and that's like that's what I say about the Airbus. It's a wonderfully designed machine. It's highly automated and and will will hit every restriction within a foot. But you still have to babysit it and monitor it and make sure it's doing what you want it to do. Yeah, yeah. You got to be, you got to be the brains. It just does what you tell it to do. Garbage in, garbage out. Exactly. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, yeah. If you don't tell it what you want to do, you'll end up like Northwest One Eighty Eight, and we don't want to don't want to do that. Mm. At least I think it was Northwest One Eighty. I I don't remember the number, but which uh, which, which one were you talking to referring to? Uh the one that missed their top of descent, and they were supposed to land in Minneapolis. I think oh. it was, <laughs> and they were like a hundred miles off. It's like oh, uh oh, <laughs> and then they scramble the you know scramble the fighters and you right. Know, I, I've had that happen to me in the sim, but they don't scramble the fighters. <laughs> Very different. Um, so, uh, one question I wanted to ask you. Um, how do you do so many legs in one day and go from transcons to shirt haul? How do you how do you manage that and the different workloads that are involved with that? Yeah, well, good question. You do have to manage it. You've got to plan ahead of time to manage your sleep patterns and so forth because... Uh, one one day you might be doing a red eye, the next day you might be doing an early morning check-in. Um, I've been fortunate enough, I've been senior enough in recent years where I haven't seen a red eye for several years. Uh, but I still do early morning stuff, and that's a challenge too, especially on the East Coast. I My body's acclimated to Phoenix time, which is Mountain Standard time. And during daylight hours, East Coast is three hours ahead of me. So if I've got an early show in New York where I've got to be at the airport at 6 a.m., well, that's 3 a.m. body clock time. And right. That means, that means I'm getting up at 2 a.m. or something like that. So I've got to be really aware, aware of that and uh, and plan accordingly, and it, it, it can easily be a challenge, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll do nor- normally not more than uh, five legs a day. Well, we'll our five is about the max. Uh, but typically we'll do more like one to three legs a day so um you know ideally I, I would prefer one to two legs a day maybe a long leg and then a short leg something like that but um it's it's kind of a mishmash depending on where the where the trip takes you and i i typically fly i prefer to fly three day trips sometimes i'll fly a four day trip so that means you leave home you leave your base in phoenix uh uh, say for the East Coast, and then you spend the night in a hotel in, in say, JFK. And then the next day you fly through, say, uh, Charlotte, and then Charlotte to L.A., and then you're st- spending the night in L.A. Uh, and you kind of bounce back and forth uh, between the East and West Coast before you come home on day three or day four. So I call that airline ping pong. You're basically bouncing between the coasts. Yeah, and those are really long flights too. I, I'm sure you guys get a little antsy. I know I get antsy. 
you know, even if I have the weather channel, you know, playing in the background or music or whatever, I'm, yeah. just, I'm just like, <laughs> four hours? This is insane. Yeah, my, my attention spans about four hours. I I have had enough at by that time. <laughs> yeah, my mine tends to cut off at about two and a half hours, and after that, I'm, you know... <laughs> I so, <can> imagine. <laughs> so I can, get, I can get from the West Coast to, say, Minneapolis fine, but any any longer legs that I'm starting to tap my toes unless it's long haul in which case you can take a break after three hours so that's perfect for me uh speaking of long haul do you ever wish you've gone the long haul route or are you perfectly happy with short to medium haul yeah well now that we're fully merged and we have a system-wide seniority list um, i'm free to bid those um but it's something that i i would have liked to have done 20 years ago yeah, and I, and I don't have the opportunity, or I didn't have the opportunity back then. Now that I have the opportunity, I, I've kind of um, settled into the cushy, uh, cushy life of mostly flying gentlemen's hours and uh, <laughs> not having to deal with backside of the clock. We already talked about the challenges of a three-hour time zone difference. You can imagine a twelve-hour time zone difference. So yeah, um, yeah. I really the pay would be more and so forth and see some new adventures and some new places. But I, it's kind of past the point in my life where I'd be fully interested in that. So, uh, I think I'll do that on my days off for vacation instead. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Or, or get a sim and do it that way. There you go. <laughs> as if, or, as if you would want to spend any time in the sim, you're probably sitting there going, I've stared at the three twenty eight hours today. I don't want to stare at it anymore. <laughs> well, we, uh, we just got back from a trip to Hong Kong, uh, Bunny and I, um, and that's and, that, and actually that goes back to the wonderful people you meet on the blog. The unexpected delight that I've had with my writing is just meeting people around the world. And and one of our blog buddies, his name's uh, Swain Martin. You probably know that name. Um, he's a he's a young upcoming pilot, but he's also a uh, blogger, and he's one of the uh, three men behind BoldMethod.com. Oh yeah, I've heard of Bold Method. Uh, he's he's been a buddy of ours on the blog. I, I call him blog buddies. He's been a blog buddy um, almost from the beginning. I mean, I met him when he was fifteen, sixteen years old, and uh, and we kind of became surrogate parents to him. We're we're kind of surrogate parents to a lot of kids around the world now. But he uh, he and his brother were touring uh, Hong Kong, and he said, "Hey, Cat Mox, come on over." And I said, "Heck yeah, why not?" So Bunny and I jumped on a plane and and headed over there and we had this wonderful uh, few days in Hong Kong with uh, Swain and his brother and then uh, lo and behold another blog buddy uh, lives there he's a native of Hong Kong his name's Dante and he uh, took us under his wing and he was our uh, tour guide and just a real generous tour guide he set up a helicopter flight over Hong Kong and we just had a fantastic time so again it goes back to the wonderful people you meet uh, from from this whole gig that I, that I've got going, it's just been a real blessing. Yeah, well, I I gotta say, um, thank you to you certainly uh, for coming on the podcast and sharing all your great stories. But I I always feel privileged um, talking to you and Carlene and uh, uh, all the other pilots I know, be it in the GA community or the commercial community. I mean, I'm not a part of the community, but yet I am a part of the community it's it, it feels great um so i want to mention your website again catmox.com mm-hmm. um any other links you want to share that people can get in touch with you and uh kind of follow your work 
Yeah, certainly. Um, I, I like to say all roads lead to the blog. Um, so you can just go check out the blog for starters and you'll have links to everything from there. But there's also, I have a great active uh, Facebook page. Um, I think it's facebook.com slash Kapanox. Um, and then uh, I'm on Twitter, real active on Twitter at, uh, at Kapanox. Everything is Kapanox. So that's C-A-P-N-A-U-X, not Captain, but without the T in there, C-A-P-N. Um, and then also, excuse me, my, uh, my books, I've written eight books now, um, and they're all available on amazon.com under, uh, amazon.com slash author slash Eric Oxier. And, um, uh, and those, uh, all my books are available in both print and ebook, um, not just necessarily Kindle, but anything uh, ebook, you can even download them on a computer or an iPhone, a, a regular, you know, smartphone, uh, with the Kindle app, as long as you have a Kindle app, you can do it. So they're available there. Um, and then also, uh, I have quite a few of my books. Uh, Everything but the uh, Dodger series is on audiobook as well. That's kind of a new uh, way to go. So we've been having fun with that as well. Do you do uh, the Audible stuff yourself, or does somebody else re- do the reading for you? It's something I would really like to do, but I just don't have the time and equipment. So I, I did uh, team up with uh, an old retired uh, airline pilot, actually, who does this as a hobby, and he's he's narrated quite a few books. He's got a great studio, great quality, and um, and and we've had a good old time uh, doing these uh, uh, these mostly the There I Was uh, series, and then all three of the books are on that, and then also uh, The Last Bush Pilots is available as well. Uh, his name's Thomas Block, by the way. Uh, you might look him up if you're an Audible um, listener, like uh, audio books. Uh, he is on uh, he is on uh, Audible.com, and he's has quite a few uh, aviation uh, uh, books that he's narrated out there. Beautiful. Well, again, Captain Knox, thank you so much for your time. I think this has been a great introduction to uh, season three, and I'm looking forward to. Uh, to probably talking to you again once you have more books out, certainly. Um, talking to Carlene again, and who knows who else we might run into from uh, the real world or the virtual world. Um, people can get in touch with me, N-I-C-N-A-C-J-A-K at gmail.com. That's November Indio Charlie, November Alpha Charlie, Juliet Alpha Kilo at gmail.com. Same thing, Knickknack Jack on Twitter. And search for Nicholas Jackson on Facebook. This work is released under a Creative Commons license and is a production of the Knickknack Podcast Network and is supported by listeners like you. Click the donate button on the website, and the website will also have the links uh, to all uh, Captain Knox's various online presence. So thank you again, Captain Knox. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. It's been a lot of fun. All right, guys. Till next time, stay safe. Stay safe. So long, everybody. Happy landings. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. I hear that red still in Seattle.